0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR and today we're going to be talking about CETA, the Canada-EU trade deal, which seems to have been blocked by a small regional parliament, the Walloon Parliament, and... The whole European Union has been thrown into a state of confusion. People are wondering whether it is still a governable enterprise. There are also big questions about what the blocking of this trade deal with a government, a, a very well developed country with a centre left government and high environmental protection standards means for the future of free trade and whether any trade deals are going to be uh, possible to sign anymore. And finally, uh, this has a big impact on the the reputation of the the European Union in the world and whether it's a serious power that wants to have serious relationships with other countries. I am joined to make sense of that by two ECFR experts. We have um, Almut Muller from Berlin, the head of our Berlin office and also the acting head of the European Power Programme. And from Paris, we have François Goodman, who runs ECFR's Asia and China program. So, Edmund, maybe go to you first. What does it say about the future of the EU that uh, a big deal like this, which is uh, you know ha- has quite a lot of significance, can be blocked by a not even a national parliament? They're, they're, I'm in front of me. I have the. British um, City AM newspaper, which is a business newspaper, and they have a, a cover which says Walloonie Tunes, which is mocked up like the Looney Tunes cartoons uh, only uh, to to make fun of Belgians, which is something which I don't like very much. I lived in Belgium for 12 years, so I'm slightly sensitive to Belgian jokes. But what what do you think uh, this tells us about the governability of Europe?
1: Well, I guess it's an old theme, and that is uh, the question to what extent and how um, a system is Uh, able to come to joint decisions in an environment of 28 member states, with all, um, of course, countries having their respective constitutional arrangements for um, signing and ratifying treaties. We've seen that with enlargement policies, for instance, and in other areas as well. It's an old theme for the EU, and throughout the 90s, as the Union grew from 12 to then, for the moment, 28 member states um, since the early 90s, the Uh, question in all those treaty reforms was always how can we also contribute to having a system that is still governable, Um, but yet that, of course, is uh, representing the will of the people. And the we, the people moment, is really coming to the European Union at the moment. It's coming to a lot of member states. um, And what analysts like, uh, including myself, have advocated for um in all rounds of, of treaty reforms, if I look back at the kind of stuff people have been writing, um, many of us said, yes, we need a more political environment. Europe needs to be politicized. It's um, important things that we're negotiating and common goods that we're shaping jointly. So we need drama. Now that drama is there, of course, the media they're so describing loves it. Um, this is just a perfect story to be covered. But of course, it tells us something about the fact that the European Union um, is not only challenged in terms of some of the policies uh, that are being crafted, and we're going to talk about the future of free trade in a moment, but I think there is also a question regarding the system as such. Um, is the EU a legitimate system? Is it a democratic enough system? It's again an odd conversation but this is a dangerous environment. It's an
0: old conversation, but the new thing is that the Walloon Walloon Parliament was allowed to ratify this thing because there's no legal reason why national parliaments, let alone regional parliaments, should be ratifying these treaties because previous trade deals have been agreed by um, the European Commission on behalf of the EU and then been ratified by the European Parliament rather than every single national and regional parliament. And it was only in July, I think, or June or July, that uh, President Juncker suggested that all 38 national and regional parliaments around Europe should be, a, should be able, to, able to ratify this. Which um, is a kind of big step forward and, and a step in, in the direction of what Francis Fukuyama calls a vetocracy where um, everybody can stop things from happening. What, why did that happen, François?
2: I think we have a, a, a shift which reflects the panic on the part of political leaders in Europe. I don't think Juncker moved alone. Juncker has been very attentive to public opinion lately on the issue of China and market economy status, for example. He's been out front and pushing the Commission, for example, to do a lot of public inquiries. But it is the governments, and apparently particularly the governments of of France and Germany, which pushed for what to them amount as an intergovernmental ratification, and the legitimacy of their own parliament. Uh, Note that many decisions can be taken by co-decision with the EU parliament, which is at least has the advantage of being one parliament. But in this case, uh, they pushed and and Juncker let it go. He has commented dryly recently that just this year, a free trade agreement uh, with the well-known democracy that is Vietnam uh, went through without problem. And he further added that now uh, the free trade deal with uh, Canada, the well-known dictatorship, uh, is being vetoed, as you you rightly pointed out. So I think what we're seeing is the absolute limit of a union uh, that wants to go through an interstate or intergovernmental method, uh, which is, in fact, paralyzing uh, itself. The Belgian story is just an aside. It happens that Belgium... It didn't always have that. This is also an acquired trait. Uh, Since the mid-'90s, Belgium adopted a new system for voting laws, uh, which does require uh, the approval of each regional parliament and, in fact, lessens the federal competence of the Belgian government itself, which is what led to the accident that we're now seeing. So, in a way, uh, Belgium is not a joke. It is a reflection of what is also happening at the EU level, uh, which is, you know, going back on the steps towards institutional integration that were provided for by one treaty after another.
0: So how much of the change which François just described is down to the changing nature of trade agreements? Pascal Lamy, um, the former head of the World Trade Organization and the former EU trade commissioner, speaks very articulately about the new versus the old generations of trade deals. And he says that the old generation of trade deals was, was largely about removing tariffs um, and uh, visible barriers to trade. And that was something which didn't impact too much on consumers and uh, had a big impact on on companies who would make the case for free trade in the past. Whereas the new generation of trade deals get much more deeply into regulatory issues and about removing non-tariff barriers, and that is something which brings up some of the, the things which we've seen in uh, around in the transatlantic trade and investment discussions about chlorinated chickens and things like that, things which are um, uh, impact much more on people's everyday lives. Is, is the fact that parliaments need to be involved partly a product of that? Or is it more to do with a wider sense that globalization is not working in the interests of the people and that people are being left behind and that previous trade deals didn't necessarily live up to their, uh, their promise.
1: Well, I believe it's both, uh, Mark. What we've seen in the German context is that um, Angela Merkel's government, I think, completely underestimated the powerful veto coalition that was forming here in Germany on the transatlantic angle. If I look back how the debate evolved, I mean, it was in the beginning just the transatlanticists, the strategy people that said, well, let's do this because it helps us shaping a world um, alongside with the Americans. And um, it took really a while for... Um, the government uh, to realize that suddenly there was a powerful alliance of, um, you know, those that are protecting labor markets or the rights of um, uh, labor in uh, in our markets, the people that are environmental um, come up with environmental concerns. Um, uh, and it was about a year ago I find that um, almost a million people were gathering outside of the federal chancellery, putting pressure on Angela Merkel and challenging her um, and the, the debate has become really sophisticated with a lot of detailed arguments about the nature of this um, this new uh, type of trade agreements that you've been describing um, and really trying to identify um, their dangers to the way that Germans and other Europeans say they would want to live. But then also, um, I think it makes a lot of sense in the German context um, to look at this in a wider Um, shift of attitudes uh, about openness, about globalization, about market logics, um, and we've seen that in uh, uh, discussions here in Germany, we're seeing it in discussions in the US election campaign, um, the the argument that openness is good for us that trade is good for us um that you know all these uh, things essentially are good also collectively for the european union and uh, and for the world is is, is really gaining um uh, a lot of or losing ground and gaining a lot of opposition these days and um, as Francois was saying i mean the The European Commission president really responded to pressure, including from from this city, um, where the government felt this is a a major um, deal in the view of the German public and um, the German parliament needs to be involved. And that shows that things have become eminently political and the risk of the system really being blocked is is very real. And especially on a subject that the European Union and the Commission have stood for in, in a kind of really strong way, in an area where the EU could really punch its weight, now we uh, are facing a situation in which the rest of the world thinks, well, it's not even in this area that the EU is is able to punch these days. Okay.
0: Well, so, François, um You've been thinking for a long time about uh, trade deals and how they shape international geopolitics. I mean, do you want to put the um, CETA deal into a bigger context?
2: Yes, but pointing out that this is a deal that was negotiated for many years. Canada itself has mixed feelings on a number of trade deals, for example, often feels pressure as we do feel pressured by the U.S., in this type of global regulatory agreements because we know that the U.S. has a tendency to overstep its its authority and to use uh, international agreements to extend, for example, its legal sovereignty. So Canada had actually agreed or has actually agreed uh, with the EU to have, for example, an arbitration process that is uh, quite well defined with professional judges, with an appeal process – not the kind of flimsy uh, agreement, uh, arbitration uh, instance which the anti-globalization crowd feels so much because it feels it's going to uh, uh, suppress our freedom to have new regulations, which can, could be called in question, for example, by investors. So this deal is actually a very good deal. It's quite different from the very, very, very broad and as yet not fully defined uh, TTIP, uh, the Vallon Parliament, by the way, had its own reason, and the Socialist Party of the Vallon Parliament had its own reasons to make points not to the EU, not to Canada, but to the Brussels coalition government, quite simply. There are also domestic reasons, so this is typically the kind of issue on which a parliament or a party can, uh, you know, use the, the, the impopularity of global liberalisation trade deals Uh Hitting the wrong target. So that is something important. More broadly, I do recognize that right now it's so much easier to say no than to say yes to any deal. That's probably why today the European Union, so far, is getting its act together on the proper answer to China on market economy status, because in this case the problem is how to politely say no uh, or to set conditions, and that doesn't hurt uh, popular feeling it's probable that the commission underestimated uh, the kind of explanations that were uh, to be uh, to be done in the public about the canada trade deal which is being you know swallowed by the wave over the hostility to TTIP. and that's one important thing the other thing i i, I would want to say is that quite simply uh if we think we will give more legitimacy Uh, to the EU by having 38 parliaments work in the process, I I thought we should have learned the lesson with national referenda. If we don't have a joint institutional system, if we don't further empower uh, the EU parliament, uh, with which there can be a rational process of discussion, it has committees, for example, the International Trade Committee, it can discuss, it can uh, reach compromise in tripartite talks with uh, the governments, with the council and with the commission. If we don't use that, we are really uh, going back uh, towards the past in terms of European integration.
0: So what do you think there, because, you know, in terms of that European integration thing, and I'd like to to kind of talk about some of the other uh, powers that are looking at the EU, like China and, um, and the US um, and what this means for, for the EU's international reputation. But maybe before we go to that, um, if we look at this question of European governability, we've had um, the Brexit referendum, we had the referendum in Hungary on uh, the refugee reallocations, we've had the referendum in the Netherlands around the association agreement with Ukraine, how do you think all these things fit together in terms of um, the the ability of the EU to conduct its business, to carry on moving forward, to respond to its citizens' needs, and even its ability to, to deal with the Brexit negotiations? Because how on earth is, is it going to be able to do a deal with Britain if, uh, if it can't do these other uh, things um, which are going to be... Uh, probably less contentious in that in domestic politics than the discussions with the uk
2: two things Uh, first trade is the core competence of the eu this is really the kind of issues on which the the european community was founded uh before the eu so if we eat into that we are absolutely destroying the core rationale for the eu so indeed We're going towards fragmentation. Immigration uh, was a very visible issue, but it's a comparatively recent issue. Much of the European Union existed uh, without a lot of these uh, common rules, which have been brought, for example, with Schengen. Uh, This is much more crucial. The second issue, I think, indeed, must give a a lot of hope to the UK government uh, in as much, by the way, as its future is not tied to the EU, whatever it says uh, about Brexit. But it's clear we have been focusing on the uh, fuzziness and the fog in London after Brexit, on what will happen, what are they able to do, what they even want to do. And we haven't focused on the fact uh, that the European governments are simply unable uh, to act together or to discuss together even very central issues. And by the way, uh, CETA was, of all agreements, probably uh, the least controversial uh, in recent times. But,
0: um, do you think that it should give British people hope? I mean, you know, you could make the opposite argument that, uh, it, you know, if the EU can't agree a deal with the UK, um, you know, the UK could end up just in the WTO with no uh, relationship to speak of with the rest of the EU.
1: Yeah, I guess that's my concern at the moment. And it feels when you live in continental Europe and you're trying to understand what's happening in the UK, you also hear a lot of hostility in the talking. Then, you know, I don't think this will motivate uh, citizens here in uh, on the continent to say yes, let's be let's be uh, generous and and have a good uh, uh, relationship and a good negotiation. I think um, the trust is really. Not there at the moment, um, and my concern would be that it's exactly going to be a situation, uh, like the one that you described, we're ending up in something that is completely messy. Um, where there might be the chance to um, negotiate the withdrawal um, uh, treaty, but then you know to, to come up with something that uh, organizes the future relationship would be so tremendously difficult. My my sense is that you know at this point in time, probably if European governments all were very honest, they'd say, oh gosh, this is not what we want. We don't want another. Negotiation. Negotiation. Um, and we've seen that in other areas too. I mean, the argument that is put forward when it comes to treaty reform, the, to, you know, what, what actually needs to be the uh, dynamism that uh, allows the EU system to adapt to the changing environment. Um, but people are just absolutely scared of touching the treaties these days. And this is, this is mad. Um, there needs to be a, a, a discussion uh, that is more rational about these things that allows the system to still be adaptable. Otherwise, we're ending up uh, in a situation that it's uh, it's really no, no longer going to work. And um, governments are aware of that. Um, having said that, I think it's it's really crucial for us also to acknowledge to a certain degree that the detachment of EU politics and policies that we have seen, certainly in the German context um, over the past decades, you know, where things were kind of, yes, and then there is Brussels and Strasbourg. Um, this is different now. People feel how um, EU... Uh, the EU is is impacting on their lives And politicians are reacting to that. It's a much more political environment. It's less a bit about diplomats, of course, who are sitting around tables and negotiating, but fundamentally it's a political system. So, uh, And and countries and politicians are learning to navigate that. And I think we have to strike the right balance between giving the citizens a say um, through strengthening the European Parliament uh, and elections uh, as François was saying, but also um, of course allowing the national debates and national parliaments to play a role. I'm not quite sure we have found the right balance though. it's certainly not
0: on cita so francois do you think it's really as much of a catastrophe as you're implying before i mean the u.s has not been able to ratify any treaties uh, in my lifetime i think or practically none and um uh, it's still a great power and i suppose a lot of people would say that we already have an incredibly integrated global system there are practically no tariffs left and these sorts of barriers to trade which deals like CETA and TTIP are trying to get rid of are kind of, a, of relatively marginal utility. It's not like the 1930s with protectionism coming back. You've got the World Trade Organization that's working reasonably well to prevent uh, protectionist borders going up. And if we don't have a, another big step forward, that's kind of legitimate if it means that Wallonian farmers can um, have their rights protected. That, you know, some things are more important than money as uh, as um, uh, some great philosophers such as Nigel Farage have said.
2: <laughs> a few quick points. First, uh, it's not even a matter of new institution or new treaties. In this case, we didn't implement the treaties as we could. Uh, asking for dual rat- ratification, uh, that is, by national parliaments, was asking for trouble. So the go- I think it proves the notion that if if, the Euro- if Europe is not going forward, it's actually going backwards. The governments themselves... Add to the difficulty because they are politicians with short-term concerns. Uh, when they could use the treaty, until recently, people were hiding be- be behind Europe for a lot of this, saying, "You know, this is just Europe deciding, and of course we're defending you, uh, and of course we're lobbying, or if, or even we're against you. We're against uh, the European decision, sorry, uh, but it was still moving forward. Now we're in a completely different trend, as Almut uh, points out, and it's very perplexing." On the UK, well, this is going to lift, uh, to give a lift to the uh, exponents of a hard Brexit because, of course, the UK has a better chance of appearing as a rational partner which can sign, could sign in the future, free trade agreements. Uh, Up to now, it doesn't have three parliaments. I'm discounting, of course, the idea of uh, breaking up of the UK, which is not entirely out of the question either. Uh, But by comparison... Uh, at least uh, a, a large member state uh, has unitary or relatively unitary uh, powers. On whether the situation is bearable, I don't quite think like you for two reasons. First, the, the reason that you cited when you mentioned Pascal Lamy that you know free trade is just not a static situation. It progresses as the economy changes. Uh, really, a lot of issues that today come under the free trade banner did not exist uh, or were not thought of uh, 50 or 100 years ago let's think about all the services that include it uh, and communications for example Uh, they also need to be encompassed uh, by by agreements and the former uh, free trade uh, agreement the standard wto provisions usually didn't take that into account so we need to move forward uh, on that too Uh, Second, uh, the U.S. uh, has at its disposal, again, extensive legal tools, uh, is much more coherent also in the sense of uh, defensive trade instruments uh, in using its own courts and its own law. Uh, The EU is far less coherent uh, about this. So I think we will suffer relatively more uh, than the U.S., and we have to take into account also that the tide against globalization or for protectionism is not uniquely European. It's global. Uh, it is still in our trading interest that others uh, lift some of their barriers. Uh, this is not going to happen if we ourselves uh, put ourselves solely in a defensive.
0: A but Francois, I, I can hear you being very negative. Is there not a chance of buying off the Wallonians and getting them to change their mind? Because Paul Magnette, who is the minister president, I think, of the Walloon region, who's a former EU constitutional lawyer, seems to have opened the grounds for that, because he said that, you know, this deal involves 500 million Europeans, 35 million Canadians. Can't we take a little bit longer to deal with some of these concerns? Seems to be opening the door for some kind of bribery.
2: After ratification was, you know, necessitates parliament approval, the Bulgarians and Romanians begin hinting to blackmail over visa issues with Canada. So this process is endless. Of course, the uh, the uh, owned Parliament can be, uh, so so to speak, both uh, with special concessions, but this will make infinitely harder uh, the business of further ratifications because everybody will be tempted to act the same.
1: Right. I think I'm, I'm I'm more positive on the Wallonian case. Um, I believe that, of course, um, the parliament is benefiting from, you know, the spot uh, onto its uh, mission and its discussion, but I think ultimately we'll come to a conclusion there. That doesn't make me more optimistic, though, with regard to some of the referenda we're facing, some of the major decisions um, that might really bring us to the situation in which the EU is really not performing in a way that we would need it to perform in a world that is changing so much and that needs answers from us
0: Europeans great well thanks a lot for for that we got one more thing to do on this podcast which is our bookshelf segment And what's on your bookshelf at the moment?
1: Yes, I'm reading a book um, that was part of the um, amazing demonstration of the guests of honor at this year's Frankfurt Book Fair last week. And the guests of honor were Flanders uh, and the Netherlands jointly, interestingly. And this book I'm reading is by Tommy Veringa, and it's called Dies sind die Namen, These are the Names which is um, an amazing novel about um, people fleeing their home country and um, it's sort of happening somewhere in Central, Central Europe. Um, and it's, it's just amazing because this book is really capturing my attention right from the start. I haven't got very far, but it's a story that was told already way um, before we have seen our waves of, of refugees and migrants coming and it's, it's very, very powerful. So I recommend it. Tommy Viringa, die sind die Namen.
0: Fantastic. What about you, François?
2: Well, it's absolutely not a book about CETA. You know that President Hollande, in in a, in a new book that's out by journalists, has spoken about four targeted assassinations that he uh, ordered, and it's creating a scandal. As it happens, last summer at a railway station, I bought a book in French called Les Tueurs de la République. The Republic's killers, I just expected to have a good time on a train, And it was actually very well sourced with former special services interviews and all sorts of of other sources and and shows how deep the tradition has been uh, and how extensive uh, ever since General de Gaulle. uh, I would guess France remains possibly with the UK, but I'm not terribly sure about that, uh, the only Uh, country uh, inside Europe, which almost officially gives itself uh, the possibility to do targeted killings. And it's a book by Vincent Nuzi, N-O-U-Z-I-L-L-E, and it was published quite recently in the, uh, by Artem Fayyar, edition in 2015.
0: Okay. So I've been reading a book called The Shipwrecked Mind on Political Reaction by Mark Leela, which is a lovely little set of essays um, by an American thinker. And What he's basically saying is that there's lots of uh, talk about revolutionaries and what motivates them, but we don't really understand the reactionary mind. And he talks about uh, people who have... uh, built up a sense of the world um, going into a kind of apocalyptic situation history is is rushing headlong toward catastrophe and dramatizes the the reactionary the conservative um, uh, uh, sorry the reactionary rather than the conservative figure who's as radical and as modern as the revolutionary but trades on political nostalgia rather than visions of the future and as as Leela says one of the great advantages in politics of nostalgia is that unlike um promises of progress you can't misprove you can't disprove them so they will nostalgia will never disappoint um anyway so it's a it's an interesting and, and fun book so that brings this podcast to an end um if you that we've put links to all the uh, publications that we mentioned, including a piece by François on the CETA trade deal on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. We also have uh, an opportunity for you to share your enthusiasm for this podcast. If you've enjoyed it with your friends by uh, giving us a ranking or a review on iTunes or SoundCloud or Mixcloud, please do that it would be really, really helpful to us. Uh, you can also write about it on your Facebook page or on ECFR's Facebook page, which is slash ECFR. But for now, from Almut Möller, Francois Godemont, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Ulrike Franke, and our editor is Katharina Butel adzinaro